Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I indicated to you that uh, one of my concerns is, for me, I'd like to come to the place where I uh, could think biblically. Now, I don't know all that I mean by that, but I know a little, I think. Uh, I'm convinced that there is a unity to the scripture that our century has tended to miss. We go through periods when we emphasize one part of a truth and uh, then other periods when we say, wait a minute, there's another side to this. Then our tendency is to shift to the other side. Biblical scholarship in the 20th century has tended to see the diversity of Scripture and the differences in it. But as I get older, one of the things that I... Convinced is that uh, the Holy Spirit was uh, the inspiring force in both the giving of the Scripture and the collecting of it. Now you can ask questions; I can't answer, but uh, that's all right. We live the most vital things in life come in that margin of life where you have to, where you have to dare, and where you have to trust. If a man only does what he knows and can prove, uh, he will is right. He will never be really creative or useful. It's in the realm of our faith that our that our opportunity comes to do something significant. And it seems to me that there is a magnificent unity in the Scripture. Now it's expressed in it's, it's expressed in different ways, and it's expressed in different languages. It's expressed in different categories and uh, in different patterns but underneath there is some there is a basic unity that god because of its origin its divine origin now this morning i'd like to talk to about something that bears on what we've been talking about the trinity personhood the body of christ our relationship to christ to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our relationship to each other, and our relationship as believers, and our relationship to the world about us. I'd like to talk this morning about uh, what I have come to call the orders of creation. Now, I'd be interested if anybody's ever heard a lecture on the orders of creation. Uh, I never have. In fact, I have never read a real treatment of the orders of creation. So you're going to have to realize you're listening to uh, something that I, uh, from my point of view, it's on the edge of where I think. It's not back in the solidly established things that uh, are commonly agreed upon by most biblical scholars and most evangelical scholars. But... Uh, there's where we need to be pushing. I don't need to say things to you that you've heard over and over again. Now, the place where I found references to this is in the footnotes in Karl Barth's 
uh, minor treatment in uh, uh, Emil Brunner's systematic theology. I find that the best I can find is that the terminology originated with Luther. Now, I would not be surprised if we read long enough and worked hard enough, we'd find there's nothing new. You know that. Nobody comes up with anything really significant. If it's new, you better suspect it. Uh, and so if you look far enough, you'll find that somebody who said that, and the chances are he said it better than, than we're going to say it. Uh, but he won't say it in 20th century language. And language changes every generation. There is a sense in which the preacher who could preach in 1930 could not preach in, in 1988 in the United States. Because language changes. In the same way when you go to a, another continent where they speak another formal language, you have to learn it if you're going to communicate. Every age has its own language and its own understand, its own content. They may use the same word, but uh, the language is different. So you've got to be perpetually translating. But I suspect this is a basic Christian theme from a way back. I've come to believe it is solidly biblical. Now, it's not so much one that I can trot out a string of, of, of proof text and say, here, see this, see this, see this. But I'm convinced that the great truths of God are seldom uh, capable of demonstration by proof text. The truth is too big for that kind of thing. Now, what do I want to say? I'm convinced that the same way the scripture teaches that man is made in the image of God, and if you find a good atheist, you will find the fingerprints of God in him somewhere. I notice that one of the problems with atheists, one of the reasons they give us difficulty, is that most of them are about 60% Christian. You take most of the atheists that I have had contact with are atheists because they have Christian concepts of God, and they can't fit their Christian concepts with, of God with what they see in life. Amazing how successful we've been with our atheists. Uh, but the image of God is in us. And as uh, we were talking about Cyrus last night, though he didn't acknowledge Yahweh, though he didn't know Yahweh, he did Yahweh's will and he was Yahweh's instrument. And Yahweh said, he's my Messiah. Now, that's fascinating. Now, uh, so uh, there is an image, the image of God marred in us. But the traces of that image are still there. You get the greatest hypocrite in the world, and you'll also get the greatest moralizer. Did you notice how moral, what a moralizer Richard Nixon was? Richard Nixon, one of the great moralizers of our day, while we, we went through Watergate. Man is made in the image of God, individually. Now, I want to say there is a corporate image. And there is a reflection of that in society. And it's in three institutions. I'm going to separate two that you probably would put together, but let me separate them uh, for treatment. The first is the state. That's not my primary interest this morning. But you will notice that uh, again and again, well, you notice a great deal of the Old Testament deals with the state because Israel became a nation. So God's way of saving the world first was through 
a politico-religious entity. You will remember he ultimately gave that politico-religious entity a king. And it had, a, it had an administrative structure, a political structure, remarkably like, uh, similar, though radically different at some key points, the, the political structures around them. You will notice that in the New Testament, there's clear teaching that a Christian, even under a Nero, or a Caesar who is burning Christians at the stake, a, a, a Christian is supposed to be a good citizen. And he is to give his loyalty where he can without conflict to his loyalty to God. He is to give his loyalty to an administrator, political administrator, who may intend to destroy him. It's interesting. Now, there is a recognition of the importance of the state. That's not my interest this morning. But I do notice this, that it runs pretty deep in you and me. Every time you get three people together, you have to have a committee. And to have a committee, you got to have a chairman. And from there it goes to any time you get an organization, you got to have a president. There is an in, in, say, inherent cry within you and me for a leader. You get a bunch of preachers together, you got to have a bishop, a general superintendent, or find some other name for somebody who's going to be the one who's going to be the leader. There's an inherent demand in people like you and me for a leader. You look at the How much money do we spend to elect a president? And how much do we get involved in it? And how much hope do we put on it? And the funny thing is, every four or every eight years, we forget that we always waited for somebody to solve our problems and we knew the one we were going to vote for would do it and none of them has ever done it yet, but we go through it every every four years, every eight years. We cry out for a leader. You know that's built into you and me the same way the messianic hope was built into Israel? And I suspect there's a relationship between these two. Now, the other two institutions that I want to talk about, and they're the ones that I'm basically interested in this morning. First, the family, and secondly, Mary. And I want to deal with them in that order, because I believe that that is the correct order, interestingly enough. You and I tend to think of marriage first and then the family. But I believe there's a biblical case we're dealing with the family first, that it has priority over marriage. Now, uh, let me illustrate what I want to say by when I call them orders of creation. You know, the tendency in our society is to explain the family and marriage as the results of political sociological evolution. Man living together. Somewhere or other came up, most of us male and female. And uh, we found that it was only when you got a male and a female together you could get another person. And so when uh, the woman bore the child, she needed protection, and so the husband stayed with her for a little while. And so ultimately they decided that was a nice way to work. And so monogamy developed out of that. 
basically that's the kind of view that that our, the modern mind has or takes when it comes to a social institution like a marriage or, or like the family. Now, I've come to believe that uh, the scripture sees these very differently. One day I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, it would be interesting if you could do it. You can't, but I, you, you know, you project experiments theoretically. Einstein developed his theory, and then uh, in the Second World War, they uh, uh, they took it and put it into application, and they found that he was dead right. Now, uh, let me give you my theory. If you were to take a 20-year-old boy and a 20-year-old girl and brainwash them and give them genuine amnesia, total amnesia, so they forgot everything they ever knew. Didn't know their name. Didn't know anything about where they came from. Just a total wipeout of the brain to where their brains were what the philosophers call a tabula rasa, you know, just a clean sheet with nothing on it. Put one on one rocket and one on another rocket in that state. Let them wake up on the flight out into space. And let the two rockets land on a planet out in remote space somewhere compatible to human life. And then let them find each other. And then you and I come along and take a peek 500 years later. See what happens. I think you'd find society structured remarkably like it is here. Now, it'd be... Some differences, because the United States is a little different from uh, England. Uh, United States is a little different from Russia. But we got our Reagan and they got their Gorbachev. They've got their foreign secretary and we've got George Shultz. And they're similar enough that they're those, they're analogically alike. All right, you can talk about them analogically. I think if you came along 500 years later, you'd find the state or its equivalent, you'd find the family, and you'd find marriage of some kind. Now, uh, what's the basis for this, and why does it keep coming up? Every society on a basic pattern with variation. I think it is based on the nature of the one who put us together and that he put his image into our social body as well as he did into our personal individual being. Like, uh, let me illustrate, on the family. I remember when I was growing up in 20s and the 30s, now, you know it's hard for you to be accurate in, in describing what took place because it's always possible that what you heard was not what was said. Preachers know that, should know that better than anybody else in the world. All you got to do is listen to what people say you said last Sunday. Uh, so what you think you heard may not be what you heard. But what I grow, grew up thinking I heard was 
that the greatness about Jesus was that he came along and said, God is good and God is loving. In fact, he is my, my like the best person and the most loving person in your life. He's like a parent. And so he said, I call God Father, and you have a right to call him Father. Not King, or even, first of all, Lord. It's interesting, we use the term Lord more for Jesus than we do for the first person of the Trinity, don't we? I think there's theology in that. Now, I haven't gotten it all out on the table yet, but I believe there's theology in that. Now, uh, God, when he decided to put us together, said, how will I put these people together? Now, what I thought was, we emerged in families and had a very precious relationship with our parents. And we said, now the big boy upstairs, he loves us, and he is like a good and gracious father, and so Jesus said, call him Abba. Now, somewhere in my life I've come, I came to believe that that is exactly the reverse of what happened. That it was not a human idea to call God Father. But it was a divine idea originated in the bosom of the eternity, of eternity, to put us together as parents and children. I'm now convinced that the first family was not Adam, but that the first family was the triune Godhead. Do you know what all the great creeds say about Jesus? He is the eternally begotten Son. All of my thinking is tended to be historical because I live in history and all of my thinking is tended to be temporal because I live in time. Time categories are the way I think. But do you know, biblically we are taught that time had a beginning and time is to have an end. And that eternity is not more time, it is a different nature of existence. How many of you have read Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time? Well, it, it, it's fiction. And there's a little science in it, but it's, it's great theology. Well, let me say, if you don't get anything else out of these days, if you will go by Madeline Langle, she's a modern fiction writer. She is uh, on the staff of St. John the Divine Cathedral in New York City, Episcopal Church. If you haven't read A Wrinkle in Time, you've got some fun coming. Because uh, she deals with the difference in that in children's literature between uh, thinking that is time-bound and thinking that isn't. 
Isn't it interesting that we live in a space-time continuum? But have you ever noticed the difference in our freedom in space and our freedom in time? You see, in space, I can move forward, backward, right, left, up, or down. But when it comes to time, I can move in only one direction. Forward. Can't take a step back, and I can only take one step forward at a time. No way I can jump one. It is an inexorable movement. Now, what she developed is, in children's literature, the concept that there is a world where you can move in time the way you move in space. It's a beautiful thing, a wrinkle in time. L apostrophe E-N-G-L-E. I guess it's the French for the angel. Her first name is Madeline. What she says is that time may be like a window, like a curtain on a window. You know, the curtain may be 36 inches wide, but when you draw it and open it, the 36 inch may not be but four inches from the first inch. So there are different ways you can come at this, you see. Now, if God is eternal, the great I am, who says, in order that you might understand, I am the one who was and is and is to come. But I know the is to come as well as I know the was and the is. And the great you remember seven times Jesus spoke about himself as the I am. And when they pushed him and said, are you older than Abraham? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, so I'm interested in the eternal thing that uh, gets spun out and attenuated in time. Now, here's where I am on that. You know what? I'm convinced that long before uh, Cain looked at Adam and said father and looked at Eve and said mother, there was one who looked at another and said father and the one to whom he looked, looked back and said son. Now let me jump the gun a little bit. I love that. I'm convinced the ultimate thing is not going to be the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, it says that after every knee has bowed, and when every tongue has confessed, and Jesus is absolute Lord, Jesus will render up the kingdom to the Father from whom it came. I think there is something biblically that says the first word about God is Father and the last word about God is Father. That in the bosom of eternity, one member of the Trinity didn't wake up in the morning, forgive my shifting analogies here, and say good morning king or good morning judge. But in the bosom of eternity, one member turned to the other and said, Father, and the other one replied, son. 
I know we live in a day when that has problems, gender-wise. But I want to say that, uh, and I can't answer all your questions here, but I believe that in that fatherhood, there is motherhood. What is being said is parent. And that there's something in the male that's in the image of God that isn't found in the female, and there's something in the female that's in the image of God that isn't found in the male. But you see, God did that separation in us of what is united in him. And so, the parent-child relationship has an exist. Its origin is not in history and in time. The parent-child relationship, the family concept, is an eternal concept not a temporal or a historical one only. Which means that God in the bosom of eternity said, let's create some people. And then the question came, how should we hook them together? And somebody said in the bosom of, each, of, the, of the Godhead, what are we making them for? And in that discussion, there was, Let's make them for fellowship with us. We like this crowd. We've got these three here. Let's enlarge it. And they said, okay, if we're going to make them, then why don't we make them like us? And so when they came out, I doubt if Adam had to think too much about it. And if Eve had a great deal of choice in the matter, it was so natural for children to come along. Because, you see, children are the byproduct of love. You get two people to live together and really love each other, you have to take artificial means, usually, to keep them from having children. I think there's theology in that. Because family is an expression of what we are, our being, our nature. Now, uh, God said, let's make them like us. So do you know everybody I've ever met is a member, comes out of a family? Every time I see one, I know there's three. Because you can't get one without two more. And you get two together, and you'll get three. In our case, five. Now there's 16 out of them. So that means there's 28 of us already. And you know, nobody planned it. Like you drop the seed in the ground, and you get a plant. So that what we're dealing with with the family is a sacred institution with divine origin. Now, why did he do that? Well, I think, I don't know, not about to read the mind of God, but there are certain beautiful advantages in that. If I'm going to be dealing eternally, 
with God as father and God as brother? Because do you know the ultimate word about Jesus? He will be our brother. But interestingly enough here, the images get confused, or at least they overlap, because he's also going to be our spouse. But we'll come to that in a moment. But it is a very intimate relationship that is envisioned eternally. Very intimate. And I want to say, God is not looking for servants. The last word about God for a believer is not going to be master. God is looking for. The Hebrew says friend. But that word really means companion. So I guess what we're headed for is sort of companionate marriage. Now don't hang me on that. But it is an intimate relationship. Now, what are the advantages in the family if this is true? Man, they're magnificent. I now see the family as the major pedagogical institution in human history. Do you know that schools are a late development in human history? And when we started the public school system, when the government in the United States got into the school business, the government said, we're there in your stead. And so the, the, the government said, the school will do something that historically the family has done. Now, we've forgotten the philosophy of that and the origin of it. But uh, I think that I, as the president of Asbury College, stand... Let me use the Latin, in loco parentis. I have the privilege of doing, you send your kid to Asbury, and I have the privilege of doing something that is your responsibility. Society is complex enough, you can't do it. You can't teach your kid computer science the way he needs to know it to compete in the next century. I can see that he gets taught that for you, and I do it for you. It's interesting, the parents, usually is the one who pays the most of the bill. I want to say, I have a deep uneasiness about federal student aid. Because the first thing you know, you think it's the state's responsibility. And the parents are off the hook. But do you know you're responsible for the education of your children? God gave them to you. You're responsible. Now, if it is that, think what a magnificent institution it is. Everybody you've ever bumped into is a son or a daughter. Do you know why I think God did that? He played a trick on them. Because he wants everybody to be first the son or daughter of a father or of a parent with a little p because he wants everybody in the world to ultimately be the son or daughter of a parent with a capital P. Everybody's made to be a son or a daughter of God the Father. So God says, I'll put them in a school to get them ready for that. Now, I've come to believe that the greatest theological institution in human history is the family. 
You can teach things in the family that cannot be taught in theological school. Can't be taught in college as well. Because you see, the most of the, the, the greatest part of the learning that ever takes place in a person's life comes before he's sick. I haven't refreshed myself on this, but Scott Peck says that neuroses, psychoses, and character, uh, maladjustment, that's not his word, character defect, are firmly implanted in a child by the time he's five. That's education. What does that say about daycare centers? Now, I'm not saying I, I don't think there should be daycare centers. There are many things you have to do in life, but you need to know what you're doing while you're doing it so that you don't let a good thing damage something better than the good thing. Now, uh, I'm convinced the family is the greatest educational institute. Do you know the one thing that you can learn in the family you probably aren't going to learn anywhere else? Is that a firm, vigorous no and a solidly heavy authoritative hand and love are not antithetical. Do you know you can love somebody and say, no. I read a columnist in this country, syndicated columnist, uh, everyone I can find. His name is William Raspberry. He's a, I love his column. I don't know him. I hope one of these days to meet him. I've watched him in the, I've read him long enough, I've seen some of the development in his thinking. I remember about two years ago I said, this rascal's got some teenage daughters. <laughs> because you can see some basic philosophical changes in some of his writing. He wrote one and said, in which his article was, yes, there is such a word as N-O in the English language. And he wrote, as a father, I'm sure. Do you know how theologically significant that is? Do you know that if a kid does not have a father and a mother who can say a firm, inexorable no and do it with great love, do you know that a person is going to have problems all his life with God? Because if he doesn't meet that meeting of law and love in the family, he'll never meet it anywhere else. There's nowhere else in our society where you can get the two in the same person. Now, uh, you notice that's rather biblical. The need for that is clear. It's interesting, he took us to Sinai before he took us to Calvary. And there are two great mountains in Scripture. And the first one is Sinai. And the second one is Calvary. Because you got to learn the no before you can understand the yes.
If you begin with the love and there's no no there, you're going to have a hard time ever introducing it. God says, yes, I am the Lord. I am sovereign. And I am going to rule. Righteousness is going to prevail. The final word in history is not going to be unrighteousness or filthiness or injustice. The final word is going to be justice and holiness. I'm going to reign. But the one who reigns also loves. So you get law in order to help you understand grace. And there's no way you can understand grace until you know what law is. Now, uh, you know, this past year I had a great disaster happen to me. And uh, I lost the book where I keep record of what I've preached. I've kept a record for, I don't know, 35 years. And so I travel a good bit and go into places and speak once and two years later come back and nothing in the world more deadly than standing up and preaching the same thing you preached the last time you were there. Uh, so I don't know. I've lost the track. It goes, I've started again uh, last uh, June. So I'm keeping my record. But uh, it's, uh, it's I, I come back and I think when I came to Orangeburg, I thought, wonder what I preached in uh, Orangeburg the last time I was there. Now, let me ask you, have I told you the experience I had with my father over a silver dollar, his death, and his payment to me of my last bill at Asbury College? I, I grew up in depression days. I remember my father came in one day with five mint condition silver dollars. And you know the old silver dollars, they call them cartwheels. And man, they were big. And they were worth a whale of a lot more than a dollar because they were silver. And so he was showing us those silver dollars. Now, I was just a little tight. I don't know how old I was, but I, you get the general age from the way the story developed. So he showed those, and I thought, man alive, wouldn't I love to have one of those? And uh, so I looked up at him and said, could I see one? So he gave me one. Thing I remember in was it was almost as big as my hand, and I looked at that thing and thought what I could do with that at recess when you could buy candy bars at school, and there weren't too many. I remember I couldn't be a member of the Boy Scouts because it cost five cents a week and you had to pay ten bucks to buy, get a uniform. Now. We were not in poverty, I don't mean that, but my father educated five kids, got them through 21 years of college between 1929 and 1943. So you decided what was essential. So, you know, I had a great appetite for those, for candy. Bigger because I didn't get too much of it. But there was that, that thing in my own hand. So I held it, and, you know, almost before I knew what I was doing, I closed my hand on it. And then I watched him to see what he did when he saw me close my hand on it. And then I took my hand and put it behind my back and watched him with an eagle eye. And when he saw me put my hand behind my back with it in my hand, 
he put his other hand down and said, uh, give it back. And I said, no. Now, my father was a lawyer. I got my first lecture on property ownership rights. And it was impressive enough that when he got through with that, I had my hand stuck out and was, was ready to get rid of it. It was too hot to handle. He put it in his pocket. And something I desperately wanted, he wouldn't give me. Last conversation I ever had with my father was Christmas in 1942. He handed me a piece of paper. It was a check for $500. And he said, Dennis, will this finish you out for your A.B. degree at Asbury? We had two quarters to go. That means that for $750 you could get through then. Now, people think college is real expensive now. Do you know that $750 then was worth 14 times that much now? But the cost at Asbury College isn't 14 times that. It's less. Mindsets determine things. College doesn't cost as much now as it did in 1932. Uh, in real, in terms of gold, in terms of stable value. Now, I, he said to me, will that pay you out? I said, yes, that'll finish my, me out. Never knew my father to borrow money. He was no hard-headed Scot until I was a junior in college. He borrowed his first money during his mature years to keep me in college. I was his last kid. Six weeks later, 10th of February, in the morning, the night watchman at Asbury came to get me about 5 o'clock in the morning. And he said, Dennis, you have an emergency phone call. The only phone we had access to was in the girls' dormitory. Those were different days. And so I went to the girls' dormitory and never gotten a phone call from home before. And so uh, it was my mother. Very simply, she said, honey, dad is gone. He died about an hour and a half ago. So I sat there without a father, and my first word was, how did it happen? Well, she said last night he was perfectly all right, or seemed to be. She said about two o'clock this morning, I heard him, he was getting up. That was not unusual. He'd sleep a little while and wake up and get up and read his Bible. When I was in high school, I came in a lot earlier some nights than I would have otherwise because I didn't want to confront him. But uh, he'd get up and read his Bible. He usually go to the kitchen, get him a glass of milk, bite to eat out of the refrigerator and read his Bible and then go back to bed. She said, I waked up a second time and he was lying in bed quoting a scripture verse he was trying to memorize. He kept memorizing scripture to the end. He was a lawyer. She said, I waked up again and he had called me. And when I touched him, he was gone. Now I want to tell you what happened inside me. 
first thought went through my head was, it's all right. He's finished his work. I want to tell you something else. Do you know that it was years before I thought that that was presumption? Because I don't think it was presumption. Do you know what he lived for? He lived for five kids. And everything he had was mine. And when he wouldn't let me have the dollar, it was so I could have what I needed more than a dollar. And you know, I think I've had a much easier time taking God's nose than a lot of my friends have had. I've had friends of mine when God said no and they found great resentment in their heart toward God. And some way or other, I grew up with the idea the Father has a right. I don't know whether you know James Earl Massey, but he is the uh, chaplain, uh, preacher of the chapel at Tuskegee Institute and is one of the great preachers in the United States. Really is. I was with him recently, and he's a, he's 60, I, I think. He said, last time I went home, said my father, I think he was 83, he said, my father looked at me, and he said, James, is there anything you need? <laughs> now, James is a nationally known figure. He'll be preaching. Uh, and teaching in Princeton in their theological seminar this summer. One of the most sought-after preachers in the United States. He's doing all right. His 80-some-year-old father <laughs> looks at James. Doesn't call him Jim. He said, James, is there anything you need? He said, you know what I knew? I expected it. Everything he's got. Is mine. Do you think he comes to John three sixteen a little differently from some pe some some people who've grown up in different families? For God so loved the world that He gave the best He had for His children. The best heaven had was for His children, because the incredible thing is. God lives for his children. But he's a God who can say no. Because truth and justice are essential to keeping love from, from corruption and from rot. You know there's nothing in the world more destructive than love that isn't informed by truth. Right and justice. We have identical twins. Interesting, you learn some things with identical twins. If you've got one tootsie roll, 
and you got to split it, you carefully get calipers out and measure it so you get it right in the middle. Doesn't matter how much you love them if you give one of them more than you do the other. You got a problem on your hands. And when you say you love them, they say, well, why didn't you cut it in the middle? Love without justice and truth is deadly. And American political life is a good illustration of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And education life. Whole university structure now. So that God said, how can I teach people this basic lesson? I'll put them together the way we're put together. And put them in a system where they can get their theology before they go to public school. Now that's what I mean by an order of creation. That's the reason I don't find it strange anymore that the Bible places great sanctions around the home. You touch the home and you've got problems with God. You know that in the Old Testament, if a kid cursed his father, you stoned him to death. And that was not brutality. God was saying, this institution is sacred. And that relationship is sacred. And that relationship may be the person's only hope. Now, maybe only isn't the right adjective to use there. But it may be his best hope. So one of the basic, one of the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting it doesn't say obey. Did you know the Ten Commandments don't tell us to obey our parents? Hebrew word is to honor. There are two different words used. One is Kavod, or kaved, it means uh, to uh, to honor, and the other is to remember. You hold them in esteem, you respect them. Do you know that you, in the Old Testament, stoned a person if he blasphemed God? Because the two were the same kind of sin. There is no hope for men when God is an object of blasphemy. There is no hope for man when the proper relationships in the family are gone. I was speaking in a group not long ago, and I said, one of the great problems in education today is that educational institutions have to be therapy institutions as well. I think about 1940, there were eight people on the student affairs staff at Columbia University. I don't know what the figures are now, but I bet you there are thousands. Our educational institution, I mentioned this. Very attractive, winsome lady came up to me after, and she said, I'm a third grade teacher. And she said, you know, I know what you're saying. Because I come home sometimes and say, well, did I teach any English or any spelling or any arithmetic today? Don't know whether I did or not. I was too busy teaching a kid who's 
life is coming apart. And she ran down the list of the problems that she faces day by day. She says, I'm a therapist instead of an educator. Do you notice what's happening to our scores? Because we're making the schools do something that they're not supposed to do. And nobody has gotten it into his head to where he can say it right publicly. But the state's never going to be able to do that. You don't want me to defend you in a law court if you've got a legal problem. Because I'm not a lawyer. you got a legal problem, find the best lawyer you can find. The state is not going to do what in the orders of creation God gave another institution the responsibility for doing. Now, I love the fact that the final word that I will have to say about the first person of the Trinity is not Lord, but his Father. I came from one, and I'm headed for one. I like that. I feel comfortable with what it means to be a human person. Now, you'll notice the prayer of all prayers does not begin with, O King of Heaven, begins with our Father. 